Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 4, Episode 7 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in this seventh episode of the fourth series, we're taking a look at the challenges and indeed threat proposed by big tech to mainstream financial services. And for that, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by both Lindsay Rogerson and Mike Cowan. Hi, Susanna. Hi, Mike. Hi, Susanna. Good to be back. Oh, well, thank you as ever for joining. Um, Now, one aspect of the regulatory and policymaking concern on all of this was encapsulated in a January 2022 paper published by the Financial Stability Institute. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, the FSI is part of Basel, so it's that sort of level of policymaking. Now, that paper was called Gatekeeping the Gatekeepers When Big Techs and Fintechs Own Banks, Benefits, Risks and Policy Options. A mouthful of a title, but it is a really important topic for future policymaking. And as you might expect, it assessed the benefits and risks of extending banking licenses to the tech firms of whatever size. Now, the paper stated that the perceived benefits of allowing tech firms to operate with a banking license was, and this is their direct quote, compelling but required scrutiny. Now, tech firms are pretty much unburdened by legacy infrastructure, and that means they can often offer superior technology, user-friendly apps, and by that mechanism, they can reach potentially way more consumers and perform various aspects of banking, so onboarding, deposit-taking, lending, payments, whatever, more effectively and efficiently than the incumbents. And that includes commercial or non-industrial non-financials that may own the banks. So we've got a very technology-centric approach, potentially, to the delivery of financial services. And that in itself has the potential to advance some of the regulatory authorities' broader goals of fostering financial inclusion, promoting competition, delivering generally better outcomes for consumers and society. However, now we start to get to the crunchy bits. As part of that authorization process or potential authorization process, and then the going through to continuing supervision, the authorities really do need to examine the ability perhaps that should be capability and willingness of tech firms to deliver on stated objectives, particularly with regard to regulatory compliance. So that's really quite a long introduction there. But Mike, where are we on all of this in terms of big techs and bank licences? So I think, Susanna, I'd like to start by um, being clear on what we mean by big tech, because you're right, the the, F- um, the Financial Stability Institute's paper covers a load of areas. Um So I've always understood the term big tech to refer to the involvement of the four or five largest, most dominant, most prestigious companies in the information technology industry. So we're talking about the Googles, the Amazons, the Apples, Metas, Facebooks, and and, and Microsofts. Now, from a fintech perspective, the Financial Stability Board defines fintech as technologically enabled innovation in financial services that could result in new business models, applications, processes, or products associated material effect on 
financials and institutions and the provision of financial services. So inherently, this uh, that definition enca encapsulates a load more firms than just the big tech firms. But the two cohorts, um, albeit very much linked, do present very different risks and challenges for, for firms and for regulators. So we know that the Thomson, from the Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's report on fintech, regtech, and the role of compliance, that the popularity of fintech applications is growing and has been growing for some years. So in September 2021, the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS, reported that there had been over a trillion dollars in equity in more than 35,000 deals globally since 2010 that fintechs had raised. Uh, yet, yet the involvement of big tech has perhaps been more modest. Um, in the Financial Stability Institute's report you refer to, Susanna, in there they listed 40 tech firms with approved or pending banking licenses to be approved. Uh, covering three areas, big tech, diversified fintech, and standalone fintech. Now, of those, um, they only classified 14 parent companies um, um, of banks as being uh, in the category of big tech firms. Um, and these don't even have, have seemed to have included the, the five firms that, that I mentioned earlier, the, the Microsofts, the, the Googles, the Apples, etc. Uh, Asia has the most uh, with firms like uh, Tencent and, and Xiaomi, I hope I pronounced that correctly, being listed as big techs. Um, um, Tencent is the largest company in the video game industry. And uh, Xiaomi is the, the second largest manufacturer of smartphones behind uh, Samsung. Well, both own banks in, in, in Asia. In the US and EU, um, Katen, the Japanese e-commerce group, also own banks. Um, yet, like I said, as big as these firms are, we're not seeing the likes of Amazon, Google, Meta, etc., fully weighed into the banking industry just yet. But sure, we're seeing some creep around the edges. And this is, I suppose, where the rub is and what, what we're sort of talking about today, really. For example, Amazon has its Amazon Cash and Amazon Pay offerings. And there are rumors that Amazon is discussing providing some form of, of checking account in the not too distant future in, in partnership with um, a larger banking organization. And of course, we have the Amazon Web Services uh, that are providing financial services institutions uh, with cloud-based solutions in that way. So, sort of, so, so all of these um, functions um, are uh, on the periphery of, uh, of of the main banking uh, facilities that that, 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 we know, that we know and love. Facebook or Meta has experimented with payment solutions such as Libra, Deem, and Facebook Pay. But again, they haven't, to my knowledge, stepped into the mainstream the mainstream banking. But there are plenty of fintechs that do fall into the smaller category, as I was as I was um, uh, uh, discussing earlier, smaller um, and but and perhaps less riskier than, than, than the big tech categories. 
So I guess um, I have two further things to I have two further things to say here. What one around uh, before I hand off to uh, back to Susanna and to Lindsay. So the first one's around advantages, and then the second one is around risks. So I think that you know it's inevitable that, that, that big tech firms, in my opinion, will get more extensively involved with financial services in future in future years. Uh, um, and there are gr gr great reasons why um, that big tech firms can offer financial services firms and financial services customers. I mean, Susanna's already uh, already mentioned um, uh, a couple of them. So there are obviously the superior techn technology that they, that they can bring to the table. Uh, this then results in a more user-friendly customer interface. There are superior data facilities that 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 enable better pricing, products, and risk assessment, and there is potential to expand financial services into areas that into areas and customer bases that are perhaps not banked at the moment, shall we say? So, from a financial services firm, there are some real big advantages for, to, to getting big tech on 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 involved. But alongside these advantages comes risks. Uh, and the Financial Stability Institute uh, paper identifies four of these risks. So there is the conflict of interest risk, which is where uh, the bank might be compelled to make a preferential loan to its corporate owner. Um, and this could have credit risk um, implications. It can um, exceed intragroup exposures um, and and generally destabilize um, uh, uh, the funding of, of, of the bank. There is concentration of power and anti-competitive behavior risks. Um, this is where that uh, where big te big techs can size. Uh, their uh, their use their customer base and market power to erode competition in the banking sector. There's cont contagion and systemic risk, whereby um, the bank may provide the non-finance corporation with implicit government support in the event of a, a systemic crisis, and this increases the risk of contagion and spillovers between the financial services sector and the real economy and, and other sectors. And then finally, there is the complex organizational structure uh, risk. And this is the risk that it impedes consolidated supervision. And the more complex um, a, 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 an owning organization's uh, structure gets, the more difficult it is for regulators to look at that on a consolidated basis, therefore increasing the, the, the resilience risk and ultimately ultimately the, the, the customer risk. And so, so hopefully, Susanna, I've, uh, I've whizzed through some of the uh, advantages and risks that big tech pose and sort of where we currently are within the market. Thank you, yes. And I think what, what is very clear from that is it's a balancing act. Yes, of course, there are potentially very interesting things that the big tech firms can bring to the party. But I'm hoping that regulators are going in with their eyes absolutely wide open as to how they get the benefit without undue risk. So which brings us nicely to policy priorities. So, Linz, where are jurisdictions in terms of their policy priorities on this and where do they see that balance or that tipping point 
being reached, you know, pros versus cons in big techs versus financial services? Yes, Susanna. So um, it's an interesting one. And I think it depends where you're looking. Um, if we take a step back, um, I to, to Mike's point about where big tech have been dipping their toes in the water, and it is dipping their toes in the water, in the heavily regulated markets like the UK, the US, et cetera, we've seen far less. And what we've seen is partnerships and deals. And I remember being at a conference, oh, I don't know, about three or four years ago now, where it was actually somebody from HM Treasury had a slide that um, we were banned from uh, copying or retweeting, but ha- helpfully somebody from the FCA didn't get the Chatham House memo. So it is out in the ether somewhere. And it was either Google or um, Amazon. I can't remember which, but it was it was like a an octopus with tentacles everywhere into their reach into financial services. But it was always um, there was always a clear line between Amazon and the regulated activity in financial services, whatever it was. And so I think that is. So far, that is the the pattern that we've seen, and there's you know some good reasons for that. If you if you see, I mean, there's the example of um, Apple's credit card partnership um, with um, Goldman Sachs in the states. You know, the sort of the it's firmly Goldman Sachs that is the regulated part of a part of that, and you know will uh, you know um, you know and and we you know that's just you know one example. So I don't disagree that we will possibly see. With Mike's um, belief that uh, big tech will end up in financial services, I'm just not sure it's going to be a straight line. I think there are there's a lot of um, uh, obstacles maybe in the way to that. And one of those obstacles in the UK is um, the online safety bill, um, which is really quite an interesting piece of legislation as crafted in the rewrite by the um, online uh, safety bill scrut- uh, joint committee, which did the bill, bill scrutiny and actually comprehensively rewrote the uh, Department for Culture, Media and Sports original idea. And what was fascinating about that, so for for, for listeners who are, um, are maybe outside the UK and not following it closely, is this is the idea. There, there is an awful lot of harm being done at the moment in the UK by people accessing uh, fraudulent investments through Google ads um, and other, uh, you know, Facebook ads, etc. So basically, they are searching for, you know, high interest investment, and what's coming up are paid for online adverts by fraudsters. And there, you know, we've we've had numerous instances of many millions of, of um, multiples, millions of pounds being lost to people through this. And so one of the things that was discussed in the evidence sessions for the online, as for the draft joint committee that did the redraft was um, that um, it's the tech firm's algorithms are effectively putting this th- these things in front of people. So once you've clicked on one online scam, you are going to be inundated with others. And so, you know, they, they um, the committee was convinced that the tech firm should be able to, should have responsibility for altering their algorithms so this stuff does not get there if they continue to take the paid for advertising from, from fraudsters. And so anyway, 
yesterday, so hot off the press, um, the uh, minister for the um, for the DCMS has said that actually paid for online advertising, which everybody, everybody except the government until now had wanted in the bill. So industry, consumer groups, the police, the FCA, and actually Charles Randall, um, the outgoing chairman of the Financial Service Financial Conduct Authority, um, ha- has actually was instrumental in calling out the tech firms in the first instance for um, you know taking money, and you know he illustrated that the FCA had actually had to pay the tech firms to have its scam warnings placed higher in the in the search algorithms than the the scam companies themselves. And so, anyway, so where we're at with this is. Um, Details are a little sketchy yet. We haven't seen the full. We haven't seen the re, the DCMS redraft of the bill, but what the Joint Committee had suggested was really quite radical. In um, so basically, the, the um, it wasn't just um, financial fines. It was actually there. Were, there was you know the possibility of people going to jail. Um, at tech firms if they did not um, get a grip on um, financial frauds uh, being put in front of, of people. And, the, you know, the, there was, there's a recommendation in there that um, for a kind of senior managers-like system where the, the, the tech firms would have to appoint a safety controller and that individual would be liable for failures um, and, that led to serious harm. It, it, and, and, and we're talking, and there were, um, the proposal was ten percent of uh, tech firm earnings is is a fine, which is you know, obviously a quite hefty chunk. However, in the reporting overnight of uh, the DCMS tweak, that seems to have been watered down to capped at a, um, at a much smaller level. But as I said, we don't have the full detail yet, so I'm not sure. So. Why am I uh, banging on about the um, online safety bill? Mainly as an example of, you know, to date, tech firms have pretty much had it their own way, the tech giants. They they have dipped their toes in various lucrative pots whenever they wanted, and they haven't actually hit up against regulation. So this is an example of regulation actually being uh, changed um in a jurisdiction to encapsulate the way that uh, the big tech are actually inadvertently or not, depending on your 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 view, um, leading to harm, financial harm um, for citizens. So, will others copy it? You know, who who knows? Um, but obviously, tech is global, and so. You know, it, it, if something is, if this does work in the UK, I think it's inevitable that it, it elements of it will be picked up mm. elsewhere. Yes, and and from my perspective, tech firms dipping a toe into financial services, even if it is just the mechanism by which financial advertising, fraudulent or not, goes out of the door, there has to be some sort of element of credible deterrence there. So that, and one of the, we we, we this is absolutely preaching to the choir. But as we all know, one of the best methods of credible deterrence is actually the potential of personal liability. Nothing else gets senior managers' attention quite as much as personal liability. So 
I do hope that that sticks in the online safety bill. And it would be very nice to think that that sort of percolates across the world. And credible deterrence, whilst it is very important in terms of driving better risk-aware behaviours and indeed compliance in the wider sense, it's not the only aspect that regulators uh, will be thinking about. They have to, in effect, make sure that any licensing regime that is in place it accommodates, let me put it that way, that the particular risk profiles of tech firms of whatever shape or size. So, Mike, what are the authorities thinking about and where are we with the existing licensing regimes for the risks for tech-owned banks and that sort of thing? Yes, the, the, the headwinds, um, risks and challenges that Lindsay has pointed out, you're right. You know, I think that the, uh, the initial and primary control that regulators have um, is the licensing regimes um, by which they approve banks and other financial institutions. So there is a pointer here to the application of the core principles for effective banking supervision, which was introduced by the Baal Committee on Banking Supervision. And this is a, um, a, a accumulation of 29 principal standards by which all prospective banks need to adhere to. And they include things like um, an assessment that the proposed ownership structure and governance of the bank and its wider group does not hinder the effective supervision uh, by the regulators. Uh, it includes things like uh, an evaluation of the suitability of the bank's major shareholders, uh, an examination of the fitness and propriety of the proposed board and senior management, um, uh, it, it includes uh, the provision of minimal, minimum initial capital requirements, a review of the strategic and operating plans of the proposed bank, including the appropriateness of corporate governance, risk management, internal controls, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like I said, there are twenty-nine principles, and they uh, and these because they're set by the Bar Committee. They uh, they are applicable to all regulators globally, and therefore for all potential firms who are going through this process, they need to be aware of the type of things that their regulators are going to uh, assess them on. Nevertheless, there are uh, there can be regional differences in the approach that uh, each um, um, individual regulator takes to this, and therefore there will be differences. In applicability to the particular risks that that big tech firms pose to uh, banking applications and um, and banking permissions, and these differences um, by for, by regulators include things like their approach to organisational structure uh, and the consolidated prudential requirements. They have different approaches to the application of capital requirements to various sizes of firms, and they have different approaches to, to assessing the strength of the parent company and, and their appropriateness for taking a bank forward. In essence, around the world, uh, you know, in, in essence, regulators around the world, should I say, need to be looking at their licensing arrangements within the within the uh, the parameters of the 29 principles and determine whether they are fit for purpose to cater for for assessing um, um, a big tech firm and a big tech's involvement with a banking or financial services institution 
So what are the sort of things where, where, that, that firms should be looking out for and what are the sort of things that regulators might look to tighten up on within these, within these licensing regimes? Well, from a governance point of view, uh, regulators might require uh, things like the majority of the bank board to be independent of the parent, uh, the parent company at inception or at least have some form of phased-in uh, approach to that. Uh, they may put in place some sort of uh, restrictions on hiring of senior executives um, uh, within the bank. Um, if if individuals have been associated in any manner with tech tech companies or or, or the parent company than themselves in in a in a given time period, for example, the past three years. Perhaps we might see regulators uh, restricting the ability of tech firms that via that violate anti-monopoly rules. Um, there may be caps on the ownership by non-financial corporations, or we may see requirements that the parent company uh, on the parent company's profitability for a period of time, uh, maybe two consecutive years, uh, for example. So there are a range of options that regulators are considering around the licensing regime, but uh, the Financial Stability Institute's report does does um, tie the the operation of, of, of the regulators licensing regime back to the twenty nine uh, principles within the uh, the the bar committee's um, core principles on banking supervision. If if I could just um, uh, throw in a very recent example um, in the two in fact from the UK where. Um, Regulators are, you know, looking at using the licensing regime and and keeping a watch on the licensing 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 regime. Um, the the cases I'm talking about are respectively Bitpanda and Binance, who are both crypto firms. Now, Binance, everyone will have heard of because it's been in it's various different scrapes with regulators around the world. Um, you know, basically backing away from it um, when the firm hasn't. Uh, Provided the information that has been sought, well, so, um, well, you know they've been trying to get a license, and um, this, the company seems to be a little bit confused about why it should provide information, which is part and parcel of getting a license. In the UK, firms, crypto firms, are actually only registered with the FCA for a, a money laundering and anti-money laundering, and so what we've seen two instances of in the last month are firms, these firms, Bitpanda and Binance basically buying um, or appearing to be buying somebody that already has the FCA registration. But but uh, to give the FCA credit, what we've seen is two statements, very clear statements being issued saying, you might be buying this, but it doesn't mean we're not going to review you once you're there. Um, and just basically putting a, a, a drawing a line in the sand or, or red flag or whatever that these, you know, that this is not an option that you can't reverse yourself into an FCA um, uh, license. Um, so I just, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there that tech firms uh, or crypto firms, I'm not sure are crypto firms, tech firms, well, they know they use technology, but, um, you know, uh, trying to think that they're being, uh, they've come up with a way to avoid the scrutiny of a license and then actually being slapped down for it. So, yeah. And I think, I mean, the licensing regimes, financial services licensing regimes, I mean, this is totally stating the obvious, but perhaps this is not obvious 
from a tech firm perspective, those licensing regimes are there for a reason, to protect vulnerable customers, to preserve financial stability, and it, depending on your regime, there is a competition angle. But for all regulators, there is a prevention money laundering angle as well. So, you know, for compliance officers themselves, if you are the tech firm and you are the compliance officer trying to help them through it, I think there are a number of challenges there. And I think a very, very big one is education as to the licensing regime and the why and the where of it. And it's not coherent across the world. You're going to have to be slightly adaptive depending on the jurisdictions you're operating in. Um, And that actually brings me on to my particular takeaway for compliance officers. And it's it's a UK example again, but it really is a warning from history. Um, For those of you who have been around a little while, you'll remember the debacle, which is probably me being very polite, of Co-op Bank. You know, Co-op Bank failed back in 2013 or so. Um, and one of the reasons Co-op Bank failed was that it was owned by Co-op Group. Co-op Group, primarily here in the UK, is a supermarket. And one of the things that the Kelly report, which I'll include a link to in the uh, episode notes, and I would actually, it's a very, very good report. And it's all about governance and how financial services governance should work. I mean, it really is a very good piece of work. But the critical issue there was that the board, group level board for the co-op, basically did not understand, did not appreciate what it meant to have a banking license in the group, did not understand what it meant to be regulated or have a regulated subsidiary, didn't understand the role of the regulator. I mean, I won't bang on about it too much, but one of the key comments from Kelly was, and this is a quote from him, is one of the most surprising features of this whole episode is that the board, and he's referring to the group board there, seemed unaware of its limitations. And for a financial services firm to have a group board or a parent that doesn't have a clue what it's up to is an extremely dangerous place to be, I would suggest. I'll leave that one there. Linz, takeaway for compliance officers? I'm not quite so sure this this is a this is a takeaway more than hopefully your workload is going to get a little bit easier with the online safety bill because there will be the tech firms doing some of the poli- well the policing and you know taking this this stuff out because uh, so where this crosses over at the moment with financial services firms is you know they have all kinds of obligations about, around you know, money, uh, people transferring money out of their accounts into these fraudulent investments, or, or or that is where, you know, people will seek to try and get their money back because there is no other avenue. And so if it's being stopped before it gets to the banks, I would, I would argue that maybe your caseload is going to be a little bit lighter, hopefully. Interesting. Well, fingers crossed. I mean, it's always the first time for these things after all. <laughs> Mike, take away from your perspective. So Lindsay's just lightened your, your caseload, your workload. Let, let, let me add to it Be, uh, uh, because, um, um, because uh, I, mean, I completely agree with what, what Lindsay's saying. And Lindsay makes very valid points around the headwinds and the challenges and the reasons why uh, big tech firms may not be wanting to dabble in financial services um, at this point and maybe into the future. Um, nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, I think it will grow over time. Um, and I think that 
licensing arrangements, as we've mentioned, are extremely important um, 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 for regulators to use to be able to uh, to um, to gauge the market and to control the market. Um, and it is it is incumbent then for on regulators that over the time and as they see more uh, big tech fintech firms applying for financial services pr approval to make sure that their licensing arrangements are um, are tight as tight as possible to cover things like ownership like governance like capital and and from the resilience um, uh, uh, perspective. So I guess I have two takeaways and this is where adding to workloads uh, comes into it. So. If, if compliance officers are in a big tech, fintech firm that are minded to operate in the financial services space and, and add a financial services firm to their portfolio, then those compliance officers need to be on top of what, what the regulators are doing and what the regulators may do in the future so that they can brief their boards and prepare their firms accordingly for the, for the future of their tech firm um, in a financial services environment, because because that will be different. It will be, and it could be significantly different. The culture and uh, and the the, the atmosphere uh, within the financial services industry will be different to any culture that they're operating with within their techno technology technology sector. The second the second one is then looking at this from a different perspective and looking at financial services firms that are. Um, um, outsourcing or using um, big tech firms as part of a third-party arrangement. And compliance officers need to be aware of the, it quite in quite a lot of detail around the rules uh, around third-party management and the future um, uh, resilience, concentration, um, conflicts of interest implications that doing business with that big tech fintech firm may have in the future because that third party firm will not stay as is at the moment. Future acquisitions, future strategic direction may have a material impact in, in the business that you're doing with that firm. So I suppose two, uh, so I suppose looking at so compliance officers depending on their um, um, uh, uh, location, I suppose, should be looking at this big tech implications in the most appropriate way. Brilliant. Thank you so much, as ever, for both of your contributions. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. Do hope you found it both interesting and useful. As mentioned, I'll include links to pieces referenced in the podcast in the episode notes. I'll also include the usual link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence. And as ever, last but not least, very much appreciated if you could take the time to review the podcast and do let us know for any suggestions for future topics. Thank you for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.